Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. Join us on May 14th for ATS 2021, our annual conference that showcases the latest research and innovations in respiratory medicine. Discover breakthroughs in science, medicine, and patient care. Register now at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's section of medical education. My name is Avi Cooper, and I am the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Assistant Program Director at Ohio State, and also a member of the podcasting team here at Scholarly. Today, I am so excited to be joined by two guests, Dr. Megan Acho and Dr. Bert Lee, who co-produced, along with Allison Lee, a series of videos in ATS Scholar entitled Mechanical Ventilation for the Non-Intensivist. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Do you mind introducing yourselves? Sure. Um, So hi, everyone. I'm Megan Acho. Uh, I am a recent graduate of UPMC's Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship as part of the medical education track. During my Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship, I also earned a master's degree in medical education from the University of Pittsburgh. I'm currently a sleep medicine fellow at Pitt with a special interest in sleep disordered breathing in the context of critical illness, as well as hypoventilation and advanced forms of non-invasive ventilation. So thank you so much for having us and I'm so excited to be here. Hi everybody, Uh, my name is Bert Lee. Um, I am uh, the head of medical education and head of global critical care at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, but I just recently moved to the NIH, and, and previous to that, uh, I was on faculty as professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and uh, that's where uh, Megan and I have been working together. And uh, my two areas of passion is uh, is re- really reflected my, by my title, which is uh, medical education and global health. And uh, I do, and I love to, uh, to teach uh, mechanical ventilation in various contexts all around the world. Great. It is really such a a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast. And I really enjoyed the video series when it came out and was really excited at the chance to to talk about it on the podcast. Uh, Megan, do you mind just describing the video series and and what you both did? Yeah, of course. Um, So our video series is comprised of um, short, approximately 10 minute long videos that are really intended to provide a brief, um, readily accessible, and easy to understand overview of topics um, that we both consider to be fundamental concepts for clinicians who are managing mechanically ventilated patients. So there's currently five videos in the series, including an overview of basic ventilator parameters, which really describes the vent settings that impact hypoxemia and hypercarbia, um, as well as a review of basic ventilator modes and breath types, Um, a discussion of reasonable initial ventilator settings for patients with ARDS, as well as a separate video uh, dedicated to understanding how to monitor those settings. And finally, an overview of the ways in which to troubleshoot elevations and plateau pressure in ventilated patients. And prior to this video series, I'd done a lot of work with medical students running their MICU sub-internship alongside BERT, uh, teaching residents in a monthly ventilator lecture series, and teaching fellows as part of the Fundamentals of Mechanical Ventilation course, both in DC as well as at Pitt. So this series really felt like a very natural extension of those educational experiences, and also gave me the opportunity to learn how to make and edit videos to create more durable educational content. Um, That was a very new (laughs) experience for me as I really didn't have any 
uh, prior video editing experience. Uh, so I found that to be a, a very fun uh, and exciting challenge. It sounds like it was the culmination of a lot of the work that you were already doing and kind of bringing it together in, um, in this video series. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Great. And, you know, the, the, the series came out, obviously, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And unfortunately, with the current emerging surge, the need for non-intensivists to be managing critically ill patients and ventilators may well uh, become more and more relevant as the months go on. So acknowledging that, what, what prompted you to, to put these videos together? Yeah, you know, actually, as Megan just said, you know, we were uh, we routinely teach this material on an almost daily basis, uh, and then at the time we were also working uh, with a few other colleagues on a series of uh, maybe manuscripts for uh, for teaching fellows, and in that context, uh, uh, the pandemic arrived, and actually um, I was approached by several people. Uh, who are non-intensivists. Some may be our cardiology colleagues in the CCU who are trying to prepare themselves for the pandemic, but also others were from my former students for, you know, like they might've done the Mickey rotation with me many years ago, or they may have been resident in internal medicine, but now they are doing something else like dermatology or, or outpatient medicine. And then they were getting tapped into potentially being backups uh, in the ICU. So they were getting very, very nervous. And I was even getting emails from some of my old colleagues in Sub-Saharan Africa who, who were similarly getting nervous. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, Megan had this brilliant idea of why don't we try to put something together for non-intensivists? Uh, so it was actually really, uh, you know, all of our, our uh, ongoing efforts as well as the current needs that really coalesced together in a nice way. And I imagine that there are, are many listeners and, you know, and educators out there who might want to do these sorts of videos to meet the kinds of, of needs that, that you're describing and, and being able to share knowledge and content and, and, and teach others across the world, like you're saying, and really have an impact. So, but there is a barrier, a technological barrier and a skill barrier potentially to making something like this that's high quality. So can you describe your process for developing and producing these and how you acquired those skills? Sure. So a lot of it, like I had mentioned, was very self-taught. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the weeks um, sort of leading up to the initial development of these videos, um, YouTubing things and spending time on various like subreddits to try to figure out exactly how to approach this. Because like I said, I, I had very, very um, minimal experience doing this. But I will say it is amazing what you can learn on the internet. Um, and you know, within a couple of days, I felt like I had enough skills to at least put something together. And then, you know, over time, gradually, I felt like my skill set was able to build up a little bit just by practice and by creating more of these. Um, so, you know, initially we would start with a basic idea. Bert and I would sort of review a core concept um, and then, you know, build on some of the ways that we've been teaching it in person. So the ways we've been teaching students, residents, and then fellows through the course, use that then to try to develop a script. And then from there, we went into filming. Um, and Bert's daughter, who um, is not on this podcast with us today, but I'll, I'll give a shout out to her, um, really did an incredible job with these illustrations. So she is like the hands in the video, you know, writing out everything and illustrating everything for us. And I think it was her talents that really helped to make this such a fun and engaging series for people and, and really made it something that from our end was very enjoyable to work on and hopefully from an audience standpoint was something that was enjoyable to watch. 
Yeah, I think from my perspective, you know, my strategy was to team up with somebody younger, smarter, and uh, more <laughs> facile with all this technology, uh, because I like to think I have the content expertise, but I didn't really have much of the technical expertise. And, and Megan is just this very hardworking person who was a go-getter and wasn't willing to you know, explore new avenues. So I think it ended up being a good partnership. That's great. And what sort of feedback have you received about about the videos or how they're being used? Have you heard any anything about that? Yeah, so the, the feedback has been very positive. Um, and I think back in May, when our first two videos had been released, we learned that the abstract for our first video had been accessed, I think it was something like more than 17,000 times, um, which was really like an unbelievable um, number to us. So I think we both went into this hoping that the videos would be a helpful educational tool for interested learners, um, but I don't think that either one of us ever really expected numbers like this. Um, and then we also learned that the videos, they weren't only being accessed in the US, but also in several countries across the world. And it was really incredible to see how quickly the videos were disseminated, which I, I think was probably in large part due to the attention that they received on Twitter. Um, primarily through retweets by individuals who are interested in medical education. So there are, are so many medical educators who are active on social media, and this has really become, you know, I think a, a wonderful platform on which to share content and gain exposure to new educational material. So at least for me, as someone that's working to develop my career as a medical educator, it was really exciting to be part of that. And then, you know, beyond the numbers, anecdotally, I've also heard from several former residents who are now working as hospitalists or as fellows in different hospitals around the country, um, who've told me that they found the videos to be really helpful, not only in regards to caring for their own mechanically ventilated patients, but also in helping to facilitate ventilator teaching to trainees who are working alongside of them. And as educators, you know, for us, I think that that's been a super rewarding aspect of this work. Yeah, I know I myself definitely shared them uh, <laughs> when I saw them kind of um, come across come across my feed because it's it's they're so well done and I think it's a tremendous resource for um, really I think for myself like I I certainly learned um, from watching from watching several several of them and um, I think that's great and I I think the other thing that that struck me about this was this was a great way to leverage the open access nature of of scholar, uh, you know, of ATS scholar in the sense that, you know, this is produced for the journal and, you know, and, 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 and published by the journal, but it's not behind a paywall and it's, you know, it's freely available to everyone. And so I think that's, you know, uh, I think kind of a shout out to the journal. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you recommend that these videos in the series be used? And I guess a related question is, you know, who is your target audience? And I know that it's kind of in the title in the sense it's for the non-intensivist, but I know for myself as an intensivist, I still benefited. I can imagine that medical students would benefit uh, who are learning about mechanical ventilation and, you know, all the, again, all the way up to, to senior faculty. So who's your target audience and how do you recommend that they be used? Well, um, so just like you had said, so as the title of the series highlights, we, we really designed um, the videos with non-intensivists in mind. Um, so as Bert had mentioned, you know, we were both very aware that with the surge of COVID cases over the spring, especially when we were initially developing these videos, there were many individuals who were tasked with managing ventilators who didn't really necessarily have formal uh, training in critical care. So our target audience was originally intended to be clinicians with no prior ventilator training, or maybe those who had had some previous exposure to mechanical ventilation in the past, but maybe they felt a little bit rusty and they were seeking out a simplified and efficient review. 
Um, and then interestingly, you know, sort of as you'd said, even though we designed the fellows for non-intensivists, we've received feedback from fellows and intensivists at several academic medical centers who found that these videos were, um, you know, a pretty helpful refresher of ventilator physiology, and then also used the videos to help facilitate teaching sessions in the ICU. And it's been really wonderful to hear that these videos have been helpful to facilitate teaching during the pandemic, but you know, we totally agree with you. I think even beyond the scope of COVID-19, we really hope that these videos are going to provide an efficient tool for students, residents, and other interested learners to gain exposure to a complex topic. Yeah, actually we're using um, you know, some of this material as like pre-lecture assignments for students to view. Uh, and, and I do think it's well suited for that purpose since they're relatively brief. You can watch it on your phone, you can watch it on your laptops, and it's fairly accessible. You both seem to have an interest in how to communicate complex topics in an understandable way. And, you know, the videos kind of reminded me of, of Khan Academy, you know, which I, I personally consume avidly. Uh, but, you know, is this the future of medical education, this kind of asynchronous online modules on complex topics? I know that Critical Care Now is another website that is and an educational platform that is doing mm -hmm. this kind of thing as well. Um, is, this, is this the future? Well, I, I think that that's at least in part true. You know, I think if nothing else, over the last eight months, this pandemic has taught us that really effective digital learning is not only possible on a scale that's larger than I think what most of us had realized, but also that it can be a really helpful tool. Um, so for example, for the past few years, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned the Fundamentals of Mechanical Ventilation course. I've been involved with this. Um, it's a two-part multi-day course that Bert um, had actually originally helped to develop. Uh, and the course is held several times a year around the country, um, including in DC for several of the DC and Baltimore-based pulmonary critical care and critical care fellowship programs, as well as at UPMC for Pitt Fellows and then Fellows from Allegheny General, uh, and then also at UVA. And prior to the pandemic, the course was held entirely in person and included lectures with active audience participation and learner engagement, um, as well as a variety of small group simulation sessions and small group workshops. So this year, uh, we converted the entire thing to a virtual format. Uh, so everything, including the simulations, were done remotely. Um, and obviously, for anyone that's been tasked with converting something like this over to a digital format, this posed some unique challenges and hurdles. Um, but now that we've successfully led this, um, both in DC and at Pitt, I think it gives way to a really interesting question. Um, and that question is, what is the impact of an entirely in-person curriculum versus an entirely virtual curriculum? So Bert and I have actually been studying this um, alongside Nathan Seem, who uh, is of course the editor-in-chief of ATS Scholar, um, based on some of the feedback that we've been receiving from the courses. And I think at this point, we can say that there seems to be advantages to both in-person learning and online learning. So certainly online learning is convenient and it can be done from any location as long as the learner has either internet access or at the very least a good cell signal. And I think from the standpoint of ventilator teaching, especially when we're considering things like the nuances of waveform analyses, virtual teaching can actually be very helpful. So now instructors have the time and the chance to zoom in on, on very minute little details and annotate things in real time. So I think that this allows for you know, small, subtle points to be emphasized in a way that might be challenging to do in person. 
you know, I, I think at the same time, there's obviously, um, you know, value to the less tangible benefits of in-person learning, including things like networking, um, increased face time with instructors. And of course, I think that the truly hands-on component of simulation that we're all looking for, those are things that are really challenging to try to replicate um, in a completely virtual forum. So essentially, I, I think that the future will very likely include hybrid curricula that are comprised of both remote um, virtual type of teaching as well as in-person teaching. So I, I don't really think that virtual teaching is gonna replace um, in-person hands-on education, but I think hopefully in the future, it will just help to be um, a, a nice supplement to that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I really like the, uh, like your question about complex concept because that term is something that we talk about quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, in our group. And, uh, and, and, and as Megan mentioned, one of the areas of, of research interest for us is to study how physicians actually develop uh, or lose mastery of complex concepts. And you know, by complex concepts, we're not talking about like Einsteinian physics, a kind of complex concepts, but stuff that is actually understandable by most people, uh, but it's a, it's a struggle. So the analogy that we often use is language, which is, you know, most people can pick up a language, but it's very difficult unless you are a native speaker uh, to learn a new language. And, 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 and ultimately it's not just a matter of intelligence, but it's a matter of practice. So I think, you know, in this format of both in-person education and also uh, like digital education, it has a chance to really complement and supplement uh, your, like your learning because it's giving you many different angles to practice those skills. And so we do believe uh, that, that there's a tremendous value in in-person education, but also these kind of mediums like videos or simulations or web-based exercises that, that we've been working on, uh, that, that all those things can really, really accelerate your uh, learning curve. What sorts of research questions do you think kind of come up uh, for you in this space in terms of learning about how effective and impactful um, this kind of content delivery is? Well, I, I think, um, you know, some of the questions that we've been talking about, um, so certainly uh, learner understanding and retention of the material. So is there a difference in between content that's being distributed in person versus something that's being taught remotely? Um, I, I think that's an interesting question to start with. But then I also think that there's higher level questions like learner satisfaction and then also um, faculty satisfaction in terms of, you know, do you feel like you had similar interactions? Do you feel like your interactions were as meaningful um, as they would be uh, if the teaching is done virtually as opposed to if things are done in person? Um, so those are some of the initial questions that we're looking at exploring, you know, trying to understand really what the, the true impact of this educational experience is if it's delivered in an online format versus an in-person format. And when you were choosing your topics to, um, to do the video on, how did you decide this is something that we, we need to teach about? This is something that um, is, is, amenable and, and, and needed that maybe people aren't going to understand because there's this whole ocean of, <laughs> of critical care of medicine, say, you right. know, for this, in, in, in this area, in this specialty that we're talking about in our specialty, how do you decide what, what to teach? Right. I, I, that's a great question. And it's something that we found very challenging. So I, you're totally right. I think trying to distill down something as uh, complicated and challenging to understand as mechanical ventilation into a handful of 10 minute videos um, can be a very daunting task. 
Um, so really, you know, we, we decided to sort of start from um, the basics and then try to build things up as much as we could. Um, and then in some of the latter videos, when we got into, you know, some more nuanced um, concepts about, you know, ventilator management, things like that, we, we really tried to focus in on ARDS, um, you know, as, as a primary disease state to be looking at, um, you know, sort of knowing that we were trying to help people throughout the COVID pandemic and that we were going to focus the educational efforts on that. You know, I think fortunately we already had curriculum in place for teaching medical students, residents, and fellows this material. So a lot of the topics were purely based off of what we found to be high yield when we were teaching these other audiences. So we sort of, you know, were able to pick and choose from that and then distill things down. Yeah, I would just add that because we've taught uh, medical students, residents, and fellows, you know, I think we had a fairly good sense of what questions uh, each stage of learners struggle with and, uh, and what wasn't necessary for each stage. So I think that helped us at least start with a framework. I think the challenge, however, was trying to fit that in a 10 minute package, which is what the journal wanted. And, and, and that was challenging, I have yes. to say, but, uh, <laughs> but I, think, I think we had a, a, a much more ambitious list in the beginning that had to be whittled down. What really strikes me about what you're saying is how much this grew organically out of what you were already doing as educators. And that, you know, this wasn't, this didn't come out of nowhere. You know, this, this was something that you, you know, you, the work you were doing was, was building to this and, and, it, and like, it, it, it just kind of made sense to put these online <laughs> um, because uh, the, the times, the zeitgeist, you know, demanded it and needed it. But this grew, or it seems like it grew organically from the work you were doing as educators already. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that was very much the case. And I, I think, you know, especially um, in the early months of the pandemic, when we were all hearing about, you know, people who were struggling um, in resource limited settings and, you know, were being tasked with managing ventilators, you know, in a context that they weren't typically used to, or, you know, weren't typically being asked to, um, try to manage fence in this way. I, I think that that provided a unique opportunity for us as, as educators to say, you know, we're, we're already working on this type of material. We're already teaching this type of material. Let's try to figure out a new way of packaging this content to make it more accessible for learners across the country and actually across the world. The other thing that, and that, that strikes me too about what you're saying is you were using your, you were using your educational skills, you know, the, the, the teaching skills that you already had you were bringing them to bear on these videos and, and in this platform. And I think, I think that's something that sometimes people don't necessarily think about it. If they're producing something for on social media, um, you know, they're making a, a tutorial or an infographic or something like that's still teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're just, you're doing it asynchronously and electronically, but it's still, it's still teaching. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, not to telegraph say too much about what you guys are working on, but any kind of, um, uh, ideas about what, which, what you guys want to tackle next? Uh, so th there's a couple things. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, we're, we're currently studying this impact of in-person versus virtual education. So um, we'll be working a little bit more with that and then hopefully writing that up in the future. Um, we're also working on the sixth video of this series, which um, is, is really going to focus on auto-PEEP uh, and identifying ways in which to identify auto-PEEP in ventilated patients. Uh, we had actually created a couple of years ago a best of ATS video um, on ineffective triggering with another scholarly podcast host, Stephanie Maximus. Um, so this sixth video in the series, I think, should tie in nicely with that. 
Um, and then we've also been contemplating uh, sort of a, a similar like companion type of video series that's really going to be focused on fellows in training. Um, so from our experiences teaching mechanical ventilation to fellows over the past few years, we've noticed that it can be really challenging for fellows to master more nuanced topics in mechanical ventilation. So for example, drawing and understanding normal waveforms, as well as identifying and then correcting different forms of patient ventilator dyssynchronies. Um, so we're planning on working on these videos over the winter and spring. So, uh, you know, get ready for something like <laughs> ventilators for intensivists in 2021. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for both for coming on the podcast today. And thank you for, for doing this work and for putting the time and energy in to acquire these skills and to, to teach all of us, um, you know, in this, in this, this difficult time in history, but clearly there are, are bright spots. And I think the work that you're doing and, and innovating in this space is certainly, certainly one of them. And we're all fortunate for that. So thank you again so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, you're very welcome. And, and I'd like to just add that I think the, uh, having the ATS scholar for our community has been very helpful yeah. because uh, you know, these are uh, peer reviewed videos, you know, unlike what you might find on the YouTube. And I think just adding that extra layer of scrutiny and vetting, I think you know, helps all of us improve our quality. So I think it's been very great to have. Well, thank you again so much. So please subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or your podcast player of choice so you can stay updated whenever new episodes are available. You can read the open access articles discussed in the podcast today and watch the videos at atsjournals.org. Take care. <laughs>